A reading from Genesis 11. Throughout the earth, people spoke the same language and used the same words. Now, as they moved eastward, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. They all said to one another, let us make bricks and bake them in the fire. They used bricks as building stones and asphalt for mortar. And then they said, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top can reach up to heaven. Let us make a name for ourselves to keep us from being scattered over the face of the earth. Well, Yahweh came down to see the city and the tower that these mortals had built. They are a single people with a single language, Yahweh said. And this is but the beginning of their undertakings. Now there will be nothing too hard for them to do. So come, let us go down and baffle their language so they can no longer understand one another. So Yahweh scattered them over the face of the earth, and they had to stop building the city. And it was named Babel, because Yahweh made humans babble different languages throughout the world. It was from there that Yahweh scattered them over the whole earth. This is one of our sacred stories. Liturgy is the word most often used to describe the structure of worship. Prayer is an element of our liturgy, as is the sermon, the confession, communion, and so on. And if there's one thing Claire and I have picked up in our six months at Northminster, it's that Northminster is a people who take their liturgy seriously. And often it takes intentional and beautiful shape on Sunday mornings. But here's the thing about liturgy. If you take it back far enough, its definition is not limited to only worship. Rather, a more direct translation would be the work of the people or the ministry of the people. And that's not limited to what we do from this chancel on Sunday mornings. In Christianity, the work of the people is not only showing up on Sundays to reorient ourselves towards love, though that is crucial, but it's going out and letting that love animate us to pray, to share our goods, to serve the poor, to show up for one another, to create beautiful things, and generally to allow God to love a new world into being through us. As Dr. Gaddy has so well said, you can't build a church without worship, but you certainly can't build a church on worship alone. And at Northminster, this is where commissions come in to help facilitate the liturgy, the work of the people, to give it shape and direction. And that's worked well for a really long time. It's given us care groups and opportunities to serve breakfast at the Desired Street Shelter, an art competition that benefits local students, and Sunday schools that help educate and challenge. When Claire and I got here, we began hearing comments like, we want to try something new, but we're not sure what. Or, we've been doing these same things, but there's just not the energy behind them like there used to be. Or, we want new folks to be involved, but we don't know what they want. And Northminster, that is a great conversation to be having. Because 
while these things are true for most all churches, most churches dare not say them out loud, lest something need to change. But since you, as a community, have chosen to look these issues in the eye, it seems we have essentially three options. Option one, we could double down on what we've been doing. We could grit our teeth and try to guilt people into being involved. And while this does look appealing, and a lot of churches do choose it, it really demonstrates a lot of fear. And if there's one thing that can smother a church like nothing else, it's fear. Option two, we could try to intuit what everybody might want and try it out. Now, this is certainly a braver and a more creative response, but the outcomes are usually more indicative of what we think everyone should be doing, rather what they are actually moved to do. Kind of like the time I thought my youth group really should be doing long stretches of silent meditation, but you could probably guess how many kids came on a Wednesday night. <laughs> or option three, with openness, we can learn how to listen really well. To learn to see in such a way that recognizes where the energy is, what the spirit is doing, and give it whatever it needs to thrive. Pentecost is, after all, the day that we remember that there is no need for a special class of priest to stand between God and the people, to do the work of ministry themselves. Today's the day that we remember that the Spirit makes her home in the temple of every heart and that the work of the gospel really is the work of all the people. As Paul so perfectly put it, it's not the pastor's job or church leadership's job to do the work of ministry, but to equip the people, all the people, for the work of ministry. Because as it says on our orders of worship on the back every week, every member is a minister. To that end, we have been meeting with the Missions, Arts, Education, and Family Ministries Commission chairs, and we have an idea we'd like to share. You may have noticed in the hallway outside of our office, there are some new bulletin boards. We've begun calling them response boards, after the way that Claire words her invitation, saying, the gospel is not meant to be consumed, but requires a response. These boards are meant to equip us to respond well. The center board has the title over it, The Work of the People, and its purpose is to educate all of us about what's going on, what sort of work we're already doing at Northminster as the body of Christ, and to give us a way to get involved if something speaks to us. The board to the left of that we've called Holy Ideas, and this is where it gets fun. If you have an idea for a way we might respond to the Spirit's call to love, there are little pieces of paper for you to write that down and post it. If you want to volunteer with a group at Salvation Army, write it down and put it in the mission space. If you want to get together and read Madeline LaEngle with a group of folks, write it down and put it in the education space. If you want to start a pub group that checks in with each other every week, write it down and put it in the community space. Or if you want to put together an art exhibit or perform a play about LGBTQ life in the South, write it down. Put it in the art space. Because you are the body of Christ. 
and each of you recognizes the work God is calling us to do in a unique way that maybe no one else can see. We believe this is a way to open things up to you directly and help those holy nudges to become reality. Now, for the more logistically minded. Once you post it, an idea is going to have three weeks to get three signatures from other people who might be interested in participating or help leading. And if it isn't able to get three signatures, that's a way we can know that there's just not the energy or support for it right now. And it comes down. Although you're welcome to try it again in six months. If an idea does get three signatures, then the sponsors will meet with the appropriate commission or commissions and help evaluate and refine the idea to come up with a specific agreement about what the group's gonna do, how often the commission's gonna check in, and this is important, when the agreement expires. Because no idea is a good idea forever. Contexts are gonna change, and this is a way to let things go when they need to be let go, and figure out where the spirit may be moving us next. Of course, maybe we can do the same thing multiple times, but when an agreement expires, it goes back to the idea board to see if the energy is still there. One more thing. Not every idea for a group, not every idea will be for a group to work on something together. Sometimes there's going to be a specific time-bound event that you might want to invite folks to. Something like, I want to get a group together to go see Rocket Man next week and talk about it over tacos. Or, we're going to Catfish Charlie's on Sunday after church. Who wants to come? And for that, there are invitation forms next to the idea forms, which are different because there's no need for that to go through a commission or come up with an agreement. Now, there are going to be bumps that we'll encounter as we go, but I have faith that we can handle those prayerfully and faithfully as they arise. So, body of Christ, this is our attempt to equip you to do the gospel work that the spirit of love is nudging you to do. For us to do it together and to carry on the task of embodying love in new ways every moment and every new place. This is a chance to expand our ideas of what liturgy, of what the work of the people of God can be. So would you join me in saying a prayer of blessing over that work? God, spirit of love, O oh Christ, you are ever finding new expression, playing anew in 10,000 faces and 10,000 places. On this day, we celebrate your spirit falling on your people, challenging any and all fearful forces and structures, especially religious structures, that seek control by standing in your way. We seek to honor your movement through these response boards. May they reflect the beautiful diversity of your being shining through every face. May they reflect the open and free movement of your spirit May they help us to love one another, to love Monroe, and to love the whole world more fully and effectively. And we pray these things in the name of the Creator, Christ, and Holy Spirit.
Hear now this reading from the book of Acts. When Pentecost Day arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound from heaven like the howling of a fierce wind filled the entire house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be individual flames of fire alighting on each one of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them to speak. Now there were pious Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. When they heard this sound, a crowd gathered. They were mystified because everyone heard them speaking in their native languages. They were surprised and amazed, saying, Look, aren't all the people who are speaking Galileans, every one of them? How then can each of us hear them speaking in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, as well as residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the regions of Libya bordering Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the mighty works of God in our languages. They were all surprised and bewildered. Some asked each other, what does this mean? Others jeered at them, saying, they're full of new wine. Peter stood with the other eleven apostles. He raised his voice and declared, Judeans and everyone living in Jerusalem, know this, listen to my words. These people aren't drunk, as you suspect. After all, it is only nine o'clock in the morning. Rather, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young will see visions and your old will dream dreams, even upon my servants, men and women. I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will cause wonders to occur in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. The sun will be changed into darkness and the moon will be changed into blood before the great and spectacular day of the Lord comes. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is one of our sacred stories. Thanks be to God. Well, there's an argument to be made that if God hadn't overreacted at the Tower of Babel, none of this Pentecost business would have been necessary in the first place. But the people were overly ambitious, you'll say. Their pride had gotten the better of them. Their egos were out of control, building a tower to reach up to heaven, the impertinence. Somehow it still seems like God could have found a way around arbitrarily breaking up families and friendships and dividing a united species into warring factions that would forever be divided. Perhaps just knock the tower down? But of course, the Babel story, like so many world-making myths in the scriptures, especially in Genesis, is not really about what it's about. If we believed that this were the historical account of God's activity in ancient Mesopotamia, 
we would have some justifiably pointed questions to ask of God, not least of which might be, was God also under the impression that God lived in the sky? But as Frederick Buechner has put it, the power of myth is not that it tells us primarily about events, but that it tells us about ourselves. In popular usage, he says, a myth has come to mean a story that is not true. Historically speaking, that may be so. But humanly speaking, a myth is a story that is always true. In other words, the truth of the myth is not that it happened so much as that it happens. Is it not true that we do let ego get the best of us? That we do unite specifically with those whose modes of speaking, of thinking, of being in the world align with our own? And when it seems that all of a sudden it's like we're speaking a different language from those we once knew and loved, are we not more likely to move on and set off to spend our time with those we can understand? You can see how, with this myth informing their understanding of the world, the early Christians came to paint the events of the day of Pentecost as a kind of reversal of the story of Babel. Something happened when the disciples gathered for the harvest festival of Pentecost. Forty days after Jesus had gone from their sight, forty days of each of them trying to work out how to live in light of this Easter story. Something happened when they came together. And whatever it was, it was so mysterious that they could only record it in images and metaphor. It was like a great deafening wind blew in and knocked them off their feet. It was like their heads were on fire. It was like they were all knockout drunk, but here it was 9 a.m. on a Sunday morning. But most of all, it was like, for the first time in a long, long time, they were hearing each other, like they were finally speaking the same language. And it wasn't just the folks who already believed like they believed. They were speaking, and they were listening, and it was everyone, people from all over the world, all together. Babel reversed. And what else could they have called that but the Spirit of God? We celebrate the story of Pentecost each year on this Sunday after seven weeks in the season of Easter. Seven weeks in which we, like those first disciples, attempt to work out how to live in light of the Easter story. How do we live as if we believe in resurrection? At Pentecost, the question grows, how do we live as if we believe that the spirit that spoke life into the tomb is still speaking? Because for the church... This story of Pentecost is one of those world-making myths. Pentecost is often observed as the birthday of the church, because it is in so many ways a birth 
the beginning of something fresh and refreshing, something new. And it is from our origin stories that we draw our sense of identity, our understanding of what it is that makes us who we are, that makes us distinctive. And so we have to read this story for the truth that lies underneath it. What is it about this Pentecost story that is true, not because it happened, but because it happens? You don't have to believe that God lives in the sky to believe that the story of Babel is somehow true. You don't have to believe that the disciples walked around on Pentecost with their heads on fire to believe that the Spirit of God inhabited them that the same spirit of love might inhabit you, too. So how do we live like we believe that could be true? Well, we start by learning how to listen to what the Spirit is saying. When he was teaching, Jesus often used that expression, let the one who has ears to hear, hear. How do we go about obtaining ears to hear? I don't have a step-by-step -step approach for you, but I know it takes practice. I know it takes continually showing up. Showing up in prayer even when you don't know what to say. Showing up in community even when you don't see the point. Showing up to practice listening more than you speak. But another part of learning how to live like we believe in the Spirit is learning to identify where the Spirit of God is moving in ourselves and in the world around us. It can be really easy to relegate, to trivialize God to the realm of cheap coincidence. And maybe God is the reason you found that parking spot so close to the door. But I think, much more often, God's Spirit is found in tangible acts of love. Jesus also said that we would know a tree by its fruit, meaning the way to judge whether or not something is truly of God is whether it reflects the love and character of God. It was kind of the Apostle Paul to spell that out even more explicitly for us in his letter to the Galatians, where he took the metaphor of the fruit even further, naming love and joy, peace and patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control as the fruits of the Spirit of God. It's not an exhaustive list, but if we take it to heart in light of Jesus' teaching about knowing a tree by its fruit, it helps us to form our imaginations for what it looks like when the Spirit of God is at work. So once we've honed our intuition for seeing the Spirit of God at work in the world, or rather of seeing the love and joy and peacemaking in our world as the activity of the Spirit of God, we're ready to join in. What holy nudges toward kindness have you felt but not been sure how to act on? When have you observed your patience growing thin, only to take a deep breath and press on a little further? 
Perhaps you have found yourself practicing radical self-control in the form of privileging the interests of others over your own, even in the voting booth. These are the fruits of the Spirit. So how can we bear this fruit together? One of the gifts of following the Revised Common Lectionary in our worship is that it means each week we are reading, reflecting, and preaching on the same scripture passages as our sister churches all over the world in all different denominations, and we revisit the same texts once every three years. One of the pitfalls is that it means for any given passage, there's already a sermon by the great Episcopal preacher Barbara Brown Taylor on that text. And any preacher worth her salt knows never to read Barbara Brown Taylor before you've finished your own sermon, because you'll never be able to say it better than she did. So apparently I'm still learning, and I did fall into that trap this week, but y'all, it was so good. <laughs> I did manage to have some of my own thoughts, but I want to share with you her language around the image of the Spirit as breath. She writes, Did you know the word conspire means to breathe together? Take a breath. Now blow it out again. There. You have just launched a conspiracy. You can hear the word spirit in there, too, to conspire, to be filled with the same spirit, to be enlivened by the same wind. That's why the word appeals to me, anyhow. What happens between us when we come together to worship God is that the Holy Spirit swoops in and out among us, knitting us together through the songs we sing, the prayers we pray, the breaths we breathe. And a bit later, she writes, when Jesus let go of his last breath, willingly, we believe, for love of us, that breath hovered in the air in front of him for a moment. And then it was set loose on earth. It was such pungent breath, so full of passion, so full of life, that it did not simply dissipate as so many breaths do. It grew in strength and in volume until it was a mighty wind, which God sent spinning through an upper room in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. God wanted to make sure that Jesus' friends were the inheritors of Jesus' breath. And it worked. Doesn't her image so perfectly capture what we believe to be true about the Holy Spirit. The idea that the Spirit of God that is poured out on all of us is the same breath that was released into the world the moment love laid down its life. Except that feeble last breath is now the powerful Pentecost wind breathing new life into us as it blows where it will. So where is that wind blowing for us? What conspiracies might we launch if we learned to breathe in sync with one another, aiding the Spirit in knitting us together as we each cultivate the fruits of love in our own lives? The Spirit is still speaking. 
May we listen with openness to where the Spirit is leading. And may we breathe in deeply of the Spirit life that animated Christ, that we might then breathe it out together into our world. Amen.